little bit sooner. We started in 2008, just in time for the global financial crisis. Okay, so so at least the the timing of our guest today was a slightly better. Uh, from from left to right, ladies first. Suzanne Stevens, uh, who's the deputy CEO, really good to to have you here, Suzanne. We've we've worked together um, in a different life as well uh, when you were at Discovery. In fact, you were all three at Discovery, weren't you? That's right. We were. Uh, so now people don't leave Discovery. Well, some people start their own businesses, so. <laughs> and, and that was, uh, I, I mean, it's interesting because if you, if you think about it, Discovery is this, uh, this, this business that has done incredibly well. The three of you were there. You were all in senior positions. And I've often wondered, and I haven't asked you, why not just go with a train? Why go off and do something yourself? Well, I think, well, certainly from my perspective, I think that, that, um, that, that drive to start your own business and to be an entrepreneur in your own right was was overwhelming and and certainly at some point you you take your ten thousand hours and you and you apply them in a space that you can can call and carve out as your own. Skok Malan, are you the CEO of Brightrock? Um, who who initiated this decision to go on your own? You know, people start businesses usually when they're in a position of some stress, not in a position of of uh, of, of huge uh, achievement as you guys were before. Who convinced who of the three of you to do this? Yeah, look, I think there would be different uh, uh, answers to that uh, question. Depends on who you ask now. I'm kidding. I think, Alec, that, that's one of the beautiful parts of, I think, our story is that everybody was at the top of their game where they were um, sitting in this room and also even other people who joined us. So, so And that was a good place to actually start from because it was a wealth of experience, um, but there's also that desire, as Suzanne says, to 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 see can we do it. Um, but also, for me, more importantly, it was that um, we believed fundamentally that the products that were currently sold in the South African life insurance industry um, had some significant room for improvement. And 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 what's the beauty about what we were thinking wasn't necessarily something that I think never was thought about. It was actually so obvious, but technology wasn't really enabling that, and and the way of delivering that in the hands of the advisor and that wasn't there. Um, and you know, we we had many discussions over many years. Actually, it didn't come with an aha moment. True. So to answer your question, um, in a long-winded way, um, but what we did realize was um, what we wanted to achieve would have had to take a complete rethink of the infrastructure, the technology, the way that it's delivered in the client's hands, the way that it manifests in the client, the end client, not just the advisor's hands. And I, I think that just made it such an obvious step to actually you've got to start new. You've got to start rethinking every single component. And that's what we did. Yeah. Every single aspect of our business was rethought. Every single word in the policy document and I think that's what really makes the story so, so absolutely um, fantastic. Do you like uh, Suzanne? Do you like that uh, bright rock uh, banner in the background? <laughs> See, it's our new studio now. It's our <laughs> own studio. <laughs> we can do what we like. I, we I can... like your decor. <laughs> 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 well, anyway, it's, it's uh, it, to be here uh, to be talking to you guys is, is is pretty special for us as well. Uh, given that Business News has been a partner of yours, Sean Sean Hanlon, for, from when you started. But I'm going to throw something at you. Disruptors, and you, you are disruptors, Brightrock uh, is a disruptor. Disruptors have a challenge of getting distribution before incumbents get innovation. Now, that's, that's a credo in Silicon Valley, not that well heard in South Africa. But I'm sure being the man who gets the distribution right for Brightrock in many ways – they can come with the marketing and they can come with the with the products, but you got to get that right. And how do you do that in a market like South Africa's, where you've got such big giants who have got such a hold over the distribution channels? Yeah, it's uh, um, funny enough. I mean, if you, it's like the eternal debate between you know actuaries and salespeople. You know, what's what, what, you know what what comes first? You know, is it the product was the the distribution, and and obviously it's a combination. But I, I mean, you you absolutely spot on. If you if you if you don't get out there and and um, tack your colours to a mast uh, and and fundamentally get in front of clients, in front of brokers, and and you know, nothing happens until someone sells something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, 
for us it was a it was a, a massive challenge you know you know you, you you speak about our our pasts you know we we really cut our teeth in some fabulous companies in this country you know um and and without that you know i, I certainly could not have done this yeah. because the challenge here was was not just about a fundamentally different approach to protecting a family's balance sheet in essence that's what life assurance is um but it was changing the way people were selling it as skulk alluded to so so you know that coupled with the challenge of who's bright rock you know you sound mm. like a diamond mine and you know will you be here a year from now where does the name come from I'll hand you over to the, to the marketing head for that one. <laughs> <laughs> to the master or the mistress of that. Where does the name come from? Well, I mean, we, we, we spent quite a bit of time um, thinking through what we'd be looking for in a name. So we, we, had, we had established the criteria uh, before we could find a name. And, and there were a couple of things we were looking for. I mean, we wanted it to carry meaning. Um, we felt that something that was in English was probably preferable so that it was, uh, you know, uh, so the, the spoken business language of South Africa. Um, and then very importantly, um, Alec, you know, we, we wanted it to be something that you didn't have to spell if you heard it. You know, it was something that you could find on the Internet. We were very conscious of finding a name and a brand that worked in a technically online, digitally enabled world. Um and yeah, so so there were a couple of things, and then you know, quite frankly, you have to see what's available because part of when you think it through, um, there are quite a few of your ideas that you think are genius, and then when you go and look, other other geniuses had also thought of those names. <laughs> well, 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 Stephen, uh, you had a, a pretty cool name, Ten X. I'm yeah. sure you'd say, well, you took Bright Rock because Ten X was taken. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, Ten X. Uh, just the very quick story of 10X is uh, Andy Grove, uh, he actually passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, he was a driving force behind Intel for many, many years. And he wrote a fantastic book called Only the Paranoid Survive. Uh, and he talks about you know, the disruptive forces in an industry. And he goes beyond sort of the traditional uh, competitive threats. And he says that it's a new entrant that fundamentally changes the business rules and either delivers the same product at a much better price or a better product at the same price. And he calls that a 10X event because it's 10 times harder for the incumbents to compete. Uh, and uh, I thought when we were starting 10X, we, uh, uh, obviously I'm biased, but I thought we had a better product at a lower price and that was the 10X event. Is there a 10X event with Bright Rock, Scott? Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think looking back 10 years, I mean, if you just look at our market share now, Alec, I mean, we, we touching into that 15% in the independent broker market, which I think was hugely disruptive, as you say, in a industry that was quite concretized. You know, it was very solid. I like that word, concretized. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, you are an actuary, aren't you? So you think about <laughs> these. Given, it's a good word, isn't it? Forms, yeah, it is. no. and, and if you look at our product, um, Alec, I mean, Sean alluded to it. It's, it, it is a product that tries to achieve a client's needs, protecting their balance sheet in a fundamentally different way of utilizing technology, stripping out waste and getting our clients. I mean, we've seen our clients, um, Stephen, I mean, you, you, you could relate to this seeing um, for the same premium, getting up to double the cover um, for the same, exactly the need that they then um, specified from the start and, and not just protecting it up front, but also over time able to adapt and change. Um, and, and that, that has been very disruptive. And notwithstanding the fact that, as Sean says, the challenge was with a new product and it's quite often the case with established markets, you gotta then, um, retrain and you gotta manage the change in terms of the sales process. And, and that, that, so it comes with its challenges and very, Revolutionary disruptive product does bring those challenges, which which I think we as a team appreciate it from day one. Yeah, if I can just add to that, Alex, um, Alex, uh, with the the if you look at the movement, the one thing we saw ten years ago, especially you know after subprime lending and and the massive shift in consumerism and and this concertining of, of the change, the way in which people are changing the way they're buying and selling. Um, you know, there was there's a, there was a move. There is a logical movement all around the world to move away from a one size fits all, from a commoditized space mm-hmm. to an individualized space. Now, if you look at the the way in which we traditionally sell life insurance, you know, we do a financial needs analysis on you, which is a theoretical exercise. And then we have to match a product, you know, to carry that risk the off off balance sheet, you know, that family's risk. But then it's a one size fits all. So so my bond and the shaping of my bond 
the duration of my children. Um, hopefully, don't stay too long in, in, in my house, you know. But uh, you know, they all have different shapes and durations. But there was nothing that could actually match those needs. So, so you you reverted back to price. Well, how much can you afford? There's a chunk of a life cover, and there was no relevance between the need, you know, and the cover, um, and and the efficiency that or the lack of efficiency inside those one-dimensional structures. Um, you know, really was was our call to arms. In, that, in my mind, Stephen, that was our 10x, 10x event. Yeah. Okay. But now let's get to the second part of the uh, Silicon Valley credo until the incumbents get innovation. So surely you look at what's happened to Brightrock, 15% of the independent broker market in 10 years. That is a huge uh, achievement in a concretized market. Thank you very much. I'm going to use that word often <laughs> now, Scott. How – innovative are the incumbents getting and, and how are, how difficult are you finding it to continue this growth path of yours Sean? I think I don't I don't think they've changed fast enough to be to be honest um, you know again how much can you afford there's a chunk of amorphous life cover you know what does that mean in a world of in a world where people are looking more to move if I want to buy a commodity I can go online you know but 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 the more sophisticated my portfolio is and this glut of information that i have as a, as a consumer i i'm i'm flighting mm. to advice so 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 life insurance is very much about product driven it's about squeezing advice into a product and our view was to say let's let's platform your advice through a product and that was a fundamental fundamentally different shift yeah. so not only did we have to cut you know the, the the first part of the of the journey was to who is bright rock and you know it's a new name and you know, but we had to, as I said earlier, we had to we had to fundamentally change the way in which life insurance products were used in the advice process, um, and that uh, we we've seen competitors try and look like that, but 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 the ability of the product to, to fracture up and and to match each need accurately is still not in place, and it's, and we are still the world's only needs matched insurer. And you're way ahead of the game here in South Africa, which is a great story today, but ten years ago, mm. uh, how did you get someone? To come and or come and come and support you and 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 decide that these guys were worth backing, that these guys did have an opportunity that nobody else or were, were looking at it in a different way, and actually to open their wallets because there are lots of us with ideas, not that many uh, able to sell the ideas. Scott, who did you get? Who did you go to first? You know, there's those famous stories of Donald Gordon when he started Liberty and. And, uh, ah, he knocked on my door and I turned him away. And, uh, same thing with Anton Rupert. Oh, I could have been a billionaire if I'd only put my money into when Anton <laughs> Rupert came to, to our farm. Yeah. Uh, what's, who did you guys approach who turned you down? Okay. <laughs> That's a great <coughs> question. Um, look, we, we, we were very busy. I mean, we were actually reflecting on the last couple of days, um, during that second half of 2010, you know, when we actively started uh, considering and myself um, working on, 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 on a lot of uh, the plans and thinking. And, uh, and yeah, we approached uh, a couple of the existing incumbents, Alec. I mean, uh, um, and, uh, and a couple of the existing incumbents. On yeah. this program, we don't <laughs> hold back on, on names. Come on. It's 10 years later. They yeah. were, they, they've all gone anyway. The people so so I'll give you one and, and as well. I mean, we, we actually approached Sunlam as well at that Back at the then. early days. Wow. Um, and, they and, must be kicking themselves. And at the time, I mean, it was just not right for, for both parties. I mean, it wasn't anything. Very kind of you to say that. <laughs> they must be kicking themselves because they came in later at a much higher price. That's right. Hmm. Um, but we, we were um, – and, and we were very clear, Alec, also some things that we – um, we're desirous of and, and needed as a as a group of entrepreneurs. You know, you, you you must be able to execute. You must be able to live that dream out to its fullest. Um, and and we held on to that. And as you know, you know, we we knocked on the door of uh, of, of Miles Jaffet, part of the Lombard Group. Um, you know, and they very much a, a a short term known in the short term industry construction guarantees as an example. Um, one of the strongest players there and. And, and, and it just clicked. And, and I do believe the timing was perfect for Brightrock of, of finding that partner. Um, you know, we, we, they're obviously well known for their venture capital. They, they're well known for partnerships models, you know, him coming also out of the whole lot stable. Um, and, and, and things happened very quickly once we, we met him. And, Did and they get it? 
from day one, or did you have to do a lot of explanation? No, look, I think the the product concept, and, and and Suzanne will also tell you, you know, was was there in in concept, or it wasn't developed. I mean, it was definitely not refined to the point where where, where we've learned over the last couple of years. Um, so, but we knew there was a concept, but more importantly, there was this group of like-minded, um, maybe. You know, people that were single-minded in their in their sure. determination, and and I think if you speak to Miles, that was one of the things that attracted him to this group of people. Obviously, and and Suzanne touched on it, the ten thousand hours, the experience, mm-hmm. because you know any technical industry is what we found ourselves financial services. Um, it is critical to have that experience and bring that to bear. You know, we can't you can't assume you you step out of. Varsity and you start a financial services business and and I think that also played a part and uh, and, and I think the other thing that and we speak about it often and sorry I'll, I'll keep quiet just now um, you know the one thing that we from day one as a group got together and wanted to approach very differently as a as a business is just that diverse thinking and and valuing that diverse thinking and and we're all big proponents of that you know and um how do you do that though? How do you keep an open mind when somebody and you, you, I know the three of you and you're all A-type personalities with respect. So you have ideas and you have a, a point of view. Uh, how do you, have you got a, like a secret code that you, uh, you, you say, okay, I'll stop, uh, you, this, it's your day today, Scott. No. You can have it. No, I, I think not. Alec, and it, it speaks to that point that I think Miles respected or the Lombard group is, there's such a deep level of respect for each other's disciplines. Agreed. And then, okay. and then, you know, we'll debate any topic. I mean, Sean will often say, you know, everybody's a sales guru. Um, and, and everybody's got an opinion on various subject matters. We partners at the end of the day. No, no, but there's but only one sales guru in our office and that's Clive Eckstein. He's, he's our sales guru. Outside of Clive, we, we, we do bow down. And I hope they do the same with you, Sean. No, but they haven't noticed. <laughs> but, but when it comes to those hard decisions and, and, and the final call, we, we've got a deep respect of then you know reverting to each other and it's more a partnership approach Alec and it I mean yes we've had our debates and that but it's never you know we've never had a, a, a difficult uh, crossroad to to bridge in terms of these discussions um, so it's worked amazingly well oh, yeah. business before you go yeah, yeah that I agree with and and I think uh, importantly and, and to Scott's point we, we we do all bring a different skill set to the table and so there's always been an appreciation that each skill set matters and that one should see every issue from a 360-degree perspective. It's actually it's a healthy thing to hear the inputs from different perspectives who around your first, issues. Who was your first hire? Who was the first person outside of the three of you that you hired and what do they do? So I think it was Amanda Spur and, and then Clyde um, Clyde Parsons, a very close, um, closely <laughs> close person of, of following Amanda. So Amanda works in the in the communication space and worked very closely with me on ensuring that post this 2008 subprime lending space, we were very aware of the fact that that how we craft the offering, it, it's critical that it it, it engenders trust. Um, and that your consumers can can come to a financial conversation where they are empowered to have an equal conversation around their needs with an advisor, utilizing the advisor's expertise, but feeling that what's getting crafted um, is something that um, that is relevant to them and that they understand its worth. Um, so, so Amanda plays a very important role in our business in enabling that. Um, and then Clyde, very, very much so on the product design um, and, and, mm-hmm. and creation of the product. It tells a lot about that. I, I remember putting that question to the guys at Investec, the five of people, the, the two cantors, uh, Errol Grom and Larry Nestat and Stephen Kossoff, who started Investec effectively, those five. Their first person was organizational dynamics. So they wanted someone to be able to get the staff to be engaged. And I guess that that was uh, they were very much a, a, a people-driven business because they're bankers. Yeah. But it's it's always interesting to open up that. Stephen, who was your first uh, your first hire? Would you also have gone with someone in communications or product development? Well, our first hire we were still in the R and D, so we spent a very long time in the R and D. We actually hired a guy by the name of Greg van der Ritt, uh, and the reason we hired him is that he said he would work for nothing, uh, <laughs> and. Uh, 
prior prior to that, he had a he had a degree. So he had a degree, and he was on a he'd done work uh, been on a ski slope in somewhere in uh, Colorado. Uh, so so he he joined us, and he was a gopher, and he was doing lots and lots of things, uh, playing a really fantastic role. And he exited. Uh, he wasn't with us. He was only with us for about two three years because obviously paying nothing. We didn't pay him nothing. We paid him something, but. You know, at that stage, we were really scraping scraping things together, uh, and he went on to have a very successful retail uh, career. But it's only a little bit later, to be honest, that we realized the importance of human capital uh, and getting, you know, a really strong uh, person to help us at, uh, at that level. Because I must say, coming, you mentioned bankers being good with people. They're, typically, they're not that good with people, and certainly investment bankers are not that good with people. So my experience, uh, kind of the, the human capital function, uh, being sort of a Deutsche Bank, uh, you know, it was it was it, it it never played a meaningful role. So I wasn't exposed to that, but certainly at 10x we saw the value uh, of people and you know and really managing uh, people in a professional way. It's very interesting to talk to financial services entrepreneurs and getting uh, Stephen's point of view. But uh, people, how many people now do you guys do you have? Are you in charge of all the people? Is that, is well, that well, your portfolio? To some extent, yes. I mean, obviously. So we have 700 people nationally. That's serious. That's 10 years. You've got 700 people. Does the government send you checks to say thank you for creating all these jobs? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it, that is a good point that it really is a very real uh, responsibility. I mean, I think it's something I'm very proud of, and I know that we all share that, that we have been able to create employment and, and, and opportunity for families in, in the current environment particularly. Um, we're still a business that's growing and we're still recruiting. How so fast are you growing? So it depends on the metric. I mean, but if I, if I look at our year-on-year growth, I mean, in terms of premium revenue, we, we um, I mean, last year was obviously a, a very standout and unique year, but we were double digits, Alec, where the rest of the industry um, was shrinking by um, you know, close to 15, 20%. Um, but I mean, if I look now year on year where we're growing, I mean, it's, it's double digits plus. I mean, we're looking at 20%, uh, you know, revenue growth, um, year on year. So that's fantastic. And it's credit really to, I think, so many aspects. And, uh, yeah, and as you, as Suzanne says, the team is growing. I mean, we, we, continuously looking to to expand you know and now you do know that we're free to air well we we all over the world through youtube and through businessradio.com but we're free to air in cape town so people in cape town know bright rock because of the rugby yeah why though do you valleys uh, i presume you are valleys or people from up country decide to go and support uh, Western Province or the Stormers? No, uh, I asked that question myself. Did you? And who's your, who's your team? What, who was your team? The Bulls. The Bulls was your... Uh, mind you, I see you you helping oh, them. You I mean, okay. we finally got there. You <laughs> took 10 years, though. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> but you've been... Why, why the Stormers? Well, again, Alec, it, it was it was actually a very rational process in terms of 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 making a choice of where where to take what I mean. Stephen will, will tell you as well, and you'll know. I mean, any kind of startup and entrepreneurial space, every rand really matters, and you you very very carefully think about where to invest, um, to invest that spend. Um, so so Western Province Rugby was um was at the time. Um, the the opportunity was there, so they were looking for partners. Um, and in terms of their ability to help us leverage our marketing strategy, which was a content-led strategy, um, they were by far the best positioned team with, with very strong digital assets. They were early to understand the power of, of utilizing stories, storytelling, and, and, and utilizing the Internet and, and, and digital platforms. Yeah, I remember an interview that uh, David O'Sullivan, who uh, who works for uh, us, well, he helps us a, a great deal. The interview he did with Sia Colisi, long before Sia was even captain of, of the team, saying this guy has just got something. And, I mean, that's a dream come true if you've been associated yeah. with such a uh, an icon uh, all the way back. So, well, well chosen. Yeah, did, no, did you see that in Sia and then decide to go with Western Province? I can't say that. But once we got there, we, we, we recognized um, in Sia just an incredible leader, but also an amazing South African story and one that is absolutely inspirational. And, and so we were definitely party to bringing that story to South Africa at that time. So where to from here in our last five minutes as we close off with the Bright Rock 
Happy birthday! Uh, did you sing? Did you sing Happy birthday? Absolutely. Did you? And, yes. and did you and sing wore it like? a party hat. Yeah. Uh, did you sing it like uh, um, Benjamin Zander said? Really, from the gut, a real, uh, a full Happy birthday, or is it just? Uh, you well, know, very some polite. of us have better singing voices yes. than others, so let's just leave it there. It's a choir of seven hundred. Mm. But where to next? What's your? What's the next mountain to climb in ten years' time? When we sit in the studio and we ask. Uh, uh, looking back on the previous 10 years, mm. the, the Bright Rock story, how's it going to pan out? Uh, Alec, I might start it off and, and I'd love uh, Sean and Suzanne to, to add to that. Uh, I mean, firstly, um, we've got still a lot to do in South African um, environment in the, in the protection space or life insurance market. So, so we're very excited about those opportunities. I mean, especially if you look at the work that Sean is doing on, on the distribution site, growing our distribution footprint and, and, uh, so, so that's a big focus for us. I mean, we've got a massive focus just on, you know, if you look at our product and, and how it's designed around adapting as a client's needs change and, and, um, you know, buying more cover, changing my cover. Um, and, and we still got a lot of exciting things to do there. Um, in terms of how clients interact with us, not just day one, but day two. Um, so those things are, are, are really great opportunities for us. And then, you know, we, we've said it and, and we've often said it. I mean, Bright Rock's ambition is to become a financial services organization within, um, South Africa and potentially one day other markets as well. So our focus is around building out our, our product offering. As you know, we've got a, um, a great funeral product offering. We've got a group risk offering now also offering it to fund. Um, uh, pension funds as a, as a group risk benefit, um, and our individual offerings. So, so we're looking to expand and, and grow that, that, that offering in due course. So, yeah, I think in 10 years time, we, we hopefully look back and, and, and with even more excitement and because there's so, still a lot of room to grow. So bolt on, if you like, it, it'll be new products bolted onto the existing chassis rather than going out and doing an acquisition. Yeah, I think, I think our philosophy dictates, and, and not necessarily bolt on an existing chassis, but I mean, that one don't know yet is sitting here. Um, but I mean, uh, we, we very much got a, I think a very unique approach to, to, um, you know, our, our needs match philosophy and that. So I don't see acquisitions in our pathway. I do see us growing our product range out in due course. Sean? Yeah, I think this, um, <coughs> excuse me, I think this change in, uh, in, in consumer behavior is fascinating for me personally and I, and I, and for us as a business and, and, and particularly in a, in a stodgy, boring industry like life assurance, you know, um, the, the truth is, is that it plays such a fundamental role. And, you know, when, when you can't protect your family's balance sheet, you know, it's, it's the cheapest and most effective way of doing it. Um, but it's, it, it has to change. And, 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 and we, we need to understand that consumers are now, Dictating the beat, you know, they 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 armed, uh, they informed like never before. And that's an exciting journey, and I think I think we've 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 put we've put ourselves on that track, um, and I think that the whole money journey, the whole um, uh, the whole financial planning journey of clients is something that I think will play out mm-hmm. quite actively. Suzanne, last word from from you. How many clients do you have now? How many policies do you have? So we've we've got two point eight million clients. Um, across all, all the products that, that Skulk has just... 2.8 million. So 700... Th- from zero 10 years ago, 700 uh, custom, uh, uh, staff, 2.8 million clients. Yes. So when we get to year 20... Well, hopefully it's exponential. Exponential. I mean, we're, not, we're not looking for doubling. That's 10x. Yes, 10x. 10x. There we go, Stephen. It's got to be exponential. Huh? So it's not incremental. Definitely. It hasn't, certainly hasn't been incremental this far. No, and, and I think, you know, I think maybe to, to echo what Sean and Skalk are saying, I think the important thing is that we, we've got a very clear mission, which is really is about enabling people to navigate big changes in their lives. Um, and, and, and we've seen that, that uh, if by delivering, both in terms of the product and in the way that we empower people in those conversations, um, that that resonates um, in a world where people have information but also want to have a real say in how the solution works for them. And we'll continue building on that platform. A fabulous journey, and uh, I'm so privileged that we at BizNews have been part of the road with you. We, we, uh, you. We're coming up yeah. with... It'll be our eighth anniversary. So we always watch you. You, you know, well, you 10. Can we get to seven? Mm-mm. No, uh, we've given up on that race and there is no race anyway, but it is, it's really good, uh, to be able to watch a, 
an entrepreneurial story like this uh, just blossom and continue to blossom. And we look forward to uh, to seeing what's going to happen in the next 10 years. Ness, Stephen? Yeah, without a doubt. And just very quickly, um, I remember when uh, Discovery uh, uh, listed in 99, uh, and at that stage they were only a medical aid. And Adrian, on the raid show, to all the institutional investors, they said, well, what else are you going to do? Are you going to cross-sell? And he said, no, we're going to focus like a laser beam, uh, which they did, which they did. Uh, but, uh, you know, we all know today, Discovery, you know, when you've got a great product, you've got a great brand, you've got great distribution and clients trust you. Uh, you know, if you can take that to the next level uh, and build out those products, as they're saying, you know, financial planning, the capital protection is one important piece of a much bigger picture. So I wish you guys and girls and all 700 of you all the very best for the next 10 years. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And uh, that was our uh, partners, business partners here from Brightrock, and we're privileged that they came into the studio, all three of them, uh, Suzanne Stevens. Uh, Skalk Malan and Sean Hanlon, good having you here in the Business Power Hour and look forward to uh, continue watching your journey into the future. Well, it's the top of the hour now, which means that it's time for us to catch up up on our news. And uh, that is with our editor-at-large, Jackie Cameron. South Africa's official unemployment rate rose to a new high in the first quarter as the construction and trade industries shed jobs. The jobless rate rose to 32.6% from 32.5% in the three months through to the end of December. This is according to Statistics South Africa. Unemployment according to the expanded definition, which includes people who were available for work but not looking for a job, rose to 43.2% from 42.6% the previous quarter. South Africa's official unemployment rate is the third highest of 82 countries tracked by Bloomberg. The World Health Organization has changed the way it names COVID-19 variants in an effort to destigmatize some countries. The major variants of concern have been renamed, with the UK variant called Alpha. South Africa's variant is now called Beta. Brazil's variant has been given the name Gamma, and the India variant is now referred to as Delta. India has another variant which has been named Kappa, while a US-specific variant is being referred to as Epsilon. The first known variant, which was identified in Wuhan, China, is not present on the list published by the World Health Organization. South African miner Sabanya Stillwater says it will buy back up to 5% of its shares in the market, or about 10 billion rands worth of the stock. The share price rose sharply on the news. Sabanya reported a massive increase in first quarter core profit last month on the back of higher prices for metals including gold, platinum, palladium and rhodium. In a statement, Chief Executive Neil Froneman says the board considered the repurchase as the most appropriate and value-enhancing allocation of surplus capital. Median pay reached 13.4 million US dollars for chief executives of the biggest US companies in 2020. This sets a fifth straight annual record in a year when businesses and their leaders battled a global pandemic. Most S&P 500 CEOs got raises of about 5% or more as their companies recorded annual shareholder returns of about 8%. This is according to BizNews Premium Partner, The Wall Street Journal. And that was your BizNews Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. For more on those and the other big stories of the day, visit biznewsradio.com. Thank you, Jackie. You're listening to the BizNews Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, as always, at this time, we catch up on the markets. And who's our sponsor? Mm, no prizes for guessing. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Welcome back, Justin Rowe Roberts. Great to be back, Alec. It's felt like a lifetime. Jeez, what, what, what you've been up to. Okay, Stephen, Stephen, you've got, have you got a CFA? Are you a CFA? Yes, I do. Okay, so yes. that's what Justin's been up to. And how tough is that to, to write a CFA and work? It's very tough. It's very tough. It's really, it really is uh, tough. I did mine in, giving my age away, yeah, 1990, I think I started in 94 or three or four. Uh, one of those years, um, and uh, it's really tough. But, you know, the great thing about a CFA, certainly from my my point of view, because I studied a CA, which is very general, and I didn't really want to be an accountant or an auditor. 
But when you're doing a CA, it's all about financial markets. Uh, you know, it's all about economics, financial markets, and everything to do with financial markets. So, so for someone like Justin that's uh, very interested in financial markets, it's an incredibly focused degree, but it's a very hard degree, and now it's a global degree. Uh, you know, so uh, you're competing with, you know, the brightest and smartest young minds all around the world. And I think they grade these on a bell curve. So, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's a great challenge. Uh, you learn a lot uh, and it's a great achievement. So, you know, well done, Justin, so far. <laughs> well, that sounds a little bit rough. So you're taking on everybody else in the world on a bell curve. So you don't automatically pass. There's no like 50% pass rate. Exactly. So although I thought the exam went relatively well, I thought I won the collision and all these things do end up coming to small margins. So I think I've put myself in a good place. You can never be confident enough because it's a percentage of pass. They pass around 43% of candidates. So at the end of the day, it actually depends on how the other candidates felt. And if the other candidates felt more confident than me, then I'm in trouble, I guess. Oh, Justin, we are pulling for you. Either way, I, I have a, um, a very good friend who failed the board exam, I think it was five times, and then gave it up. So it just, just happens, and, and he, he was very bright. Uh, and it just one thing that he couldn't get through, but he never felt confident after he came out of the exams. In your case, you're feeling good. That's it. Stephen, he's got our vote, hasn't he? Without a doubt. So what's happening on the markets today? Thanks, guys. The JSE All Share Index continued its momentum up 1.5% to 69,000. Sassel was up 6.4% to 238 rand a share on the back of stronger oil prices. Sabanya Stillwater was up 5% to 68 rand a share as the miner announced a 10 billion rand share buyback program. MTN was up 3% to 102 rand 50 a share. And Remgro was up 3% to 123 rand a share. In the currency markets, the rand was flat against all the major currencies to 13 rand 75 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 48 to the pound, and 16 rand 84 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,900 an ounce. Brent crude is at $71 a barrel. The premier cryptocurrency is slightly lower at 500,000 rand a bitcoin. And the Kruger rand will cost you 27,300. In the U.S. markets, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is slightly higher at 34,600. The S&P 500 is flat at 4,200. And the NASDAQ is low at 13,700. Thanks for adding the Kruger Rand. Uh, there's a lot of people own Kruger Rands. And, uh, well, it's been a phenomenal performer. Actually, uh, uh, after last night's conversation, Stephen, I got an email from Peter Major who showed the gold in the gold ETF, the new gold ETF. And it looks like a Ponzi scheme. It just goes up in one direction over a length, uh, a period of time. Uh, and, you know, that's the giveaway with a Ponzi scheme. If it, if it goes up and, and there's no pullbacks. But it seems as though Kruger Rand prices or, or South African gold price in South African rands is, is a little bit of a one-way bet. Uh, yes. Um, as you know, you've got two things to play there. You've got... The rand, which is strong, uh, so it's great to see uh, you know Kruger rands doing well in a strong rand because normally we associate commodities with a weak rand is when we benefit. So it's the underlying gold price that is doing uh, uh, really well. So that is you know that is really good to see. Justin, uh, I see on the Wall Street Journal our partners over there. Uh, the the headline is oil price hits two year high as OPEC sees more demand. So you mentioned that Sassel's had a particularly good day today. Sassel up 6.4%. If these oil prices persist around the $70 mark and, and people even projecting oil to go further, Sassel's earnings per share will be around 40 to 50 rand. So if you think that they're trading on five price to earnings, which is mild, um, they're seriously going to be earning a lot of cash uh, if the oil spot price stays where it is today. Isn't it interesting, Stephen, that we were able to buy Sassel in our business portfolio twenty-eight rand a share only a year ago? Just it's unbelievable. Year. It's unbelievable. And if you look at the oil price, when was it uh, in COVID? Was it about April of last year, where the oil price actually went negative? Do you remember that? Indeed, where the dev- forward, yeah. because of because of the cost of holding oil and uh, virtually or the demand having dried up so much, uh, people were actually you were being paid to buy oil. Uh, and now you look at the share price and it just, you know, it comes back to, uh, you know, as investors, you've really got to look at the long term and try and eliminate all kind of the short term emotion and noise. Because if you're able to do that, even half decently, you know, as a long term investor, you can really make some fantastic, uh, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, investment uh, decisions uh, for yourself. Stephen, so you still remember the theory of storage from 1994. That's very impressive. Uh, that's what it takes to get a CFA, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> but what about that gold price? Nineteen hundred dollars. It's hanging in there. Well, in fact, not hanging in there. It's it's sitting pretty uh, pretty steady. Yes, and then to go on to the conversation that you and Stephen were having earlier about the Krugerrands, I was reading the report today. I think since two thousand, fourteen percent compounded annual return, which is very impressive. And I think if you're just invested in gold, um, also from two thousand in rand terms, I think around fifteen percent, which which is Great, considering that if you're earning in anything between 10 and 15%, I think you're doing relatively well year on year. That barbarous relic has actually delivered the goods. Stephen, I suppose the question now is all these gold bugs who live in South Africa, and I think we've, there's a little bit of gold bug in, in all of us uh, because of the, the, the history of this country. Are we, are we missing a trick by not having bought gold in the past, or is it too late to have bought it or to buy it now so you know gold is a very difficult asset to to value because uh, you know on the one hand gold has a value because we use it in jewelry so you know it has a it, it has a value but the vast majority of gold is not used in consumption the vast majority of gold is used in kind of stored in central bank vaults so it's a little bit it's a little bit of a sentiment play uh, you know, it's kind of uh, uh, often people will say as a store of value in a safe haven environment. So if we have a financial crisis uh, or a coronavirus, a global pandemic, then we look for stores of value. And gold tends to do well in those, uh, you know, in those kind of environments. But if you look at the long term, and now we're talking about, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, uh, you know, then gold has not done well. Uh, it tends to, you know, match inflation. Uh, you've got to be a little bit careful about where your, your starting point in gold is uh, because there's quite a bit of uh, what we call kind of starting point or end point risk. If you get the right period, it looks fantastic. But if you look over the very long term, uh, it hasn't been a wonderful uh, asset. So it's much more of a trading opportunity. Typically, that, it, that is what it has been. You know, I think we're also in an environment now where globally there's so much money sloshing around the financial system. There's more money than opportunities. And I think it's sort of uh, as well gold is benefiting just because there's so much money. And, you know, if you're holding cash, uh, sometimes you're getting a negative interest rate on cash if, you, if you're holding on to it. And even if you're investing in government bonds, many government bonds are still getting a negative interest rate. So I would be a little bit cautious about being overly optimistic about gold. But in South Africa, just by owning the index, you know, you – you tend to pick up a reasonable uh, slug of gold just there. Whereas if you were, let's say, uh, in the UK or the US and you just bought the index, you would get negligible gold exposure. So we do we do pick some up indirectly in the index. But, uh, you know, it's not a bad idea to have a small portion of your portfolio in gold. But I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't. Uh, I, I'm personally not a very big uh, gold bull for the long term. And just to close off with, you mentioned uh, Sabanya Steel, uh, Stillwater. We had Neil Freineman here last night uh, on, in our virtual studio. Uh, share price up 4% today, I see. So a big big announcement there about a share buyback. Yeah, I guess we have to chat about that. 10 billion rand, it's a lot of money. The company's got a 200 billion market cap, so it's 5% of its shares in issue. Um, I guess it would have been either a big dividend um, or, or the sherry purchase and they've chosen the sherry purchase. Um, Stephen, what are your thoughts? You, if you were a shareholder, I'm not too sure if you are, would you prefer getting that dividend in cash or, or do you not mind the share buybacks? Uh, yeah, it's always a difficult one because uh, you know, the fact that you signal a share buyback and your share goes up 4%, it means you're trading against yourself means you're telling the market that, you know, you've got this natural buy of 10 billion. So it ends up costing you more. So, you know, it's, 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 it's certainly 4% more expensive today than it was uh, prior, prior to the announcement. Um, you know, uh, management is really all about capital allocation. And if you think about it, uh, typically there's sort of three things you can do in a business. The one is you say, uh, we have capital and we have investment opportunities that are attractive for our shareholders. So it's above our kind of uh, cost of capital. So we can reinvest in our business. Uh, if you don't have those opportunities, then if you're sitting on cash uh, in a low interest rate environment, that's going to be quite a big drag on earnings. So you don't want to be holding too much cash. Then it's a question, do you give it back to to shareholders where they would be taxed uh, with dividend tax at a 20% withholding tax uh, or do you buy your your shares back? Uh, so it's really one of one of the two. But I think what you what you do want to see from a company from management is actually being proactive in capital management 
and not letting cash sit idle on the balance sheet. So I think that, you know, it's definitely a better option than, uh, than um, uh, letting it stay on the balance sheet. Uh, and then whether you get a dividend or not, you know, that's always, you know, you get different kind of investors who want dividends. And just, you know, one, one thing to note about dividends, that's quite interesting in South Africa, is that pension funds uh, are tax exempt. So the dividend for a pension fund, they don't pay the, the, the 20% withholding tax. So, so dividends more valuable to a pension fund than it is to uh, an ordinary investor. So Neil Froneman gets the thumbs up from our experts, uh, and it was lovely having him on the program last night. He had some pretty strong words to say to uh, government, particularly Gwede Mantash, about the need to go green in energy and let the companies build their own plants if they are able to. That is uh, our market report. And, of course, around about uh, just after 6 o'clock every night, Justin will be bringing us up to date with what's happening in the investment markets. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Indeed, it does. Well, uh, we've had quite a bright rock evening tonight. Uh, we're now going to be moving on to uh, two other interesting companies. First off is Famous Brands. And Famous Brands, you might recall, made a disastrous foray into the UK in 2016. They bought a company there called Gourmet Burger Kitchen. They have now finally, uh, in today's financial results, written off the entire two and a half billion rand that was invested there. Gourmet Burger Kitchen is no, well, certainly has got no more relationship uh, with famous brands. But I listened in on the uh, entire presentation today and I started getting quite excited about this company, not because of the numbers that they produced, because they've gone from a solid profit to a, a pretty uh, significant loss. At the operating level, operating profit is down, is well, it's reversed by 700 million rand in the last 12 months. So you've got the gourmet burger kitchen nonsense, plus you've had COVID, which has smashed uh, a company which is in its market. However, the second half of the financial year for famous brands was a massive improvement on the first half. So in other words, those six months from August until February uh, were far, far better than the first six months. They managed to claw back a lot of those losses. One big thing now is that they're sitting on a debt-to-equity ratio of 350%. Stephen, 350% debt-to-equity. That's pretty high, isn't it? Uh, yes. I mean, you know, without delving into the detail, it's it's almost technically insolvent. You know, so 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 you obviously need um, you know lots of profit uh, to to pay down your debt, and you know clearly they're not insolvent. So you know they are a cash business, and they do have very good cash generation capabilities. But uh, you know the business is where it is. You know, obviously you you know uh, the acquisitions they made uh, and financing those acquisitions with debt. It's always tricky. Uh, you know, when you're confident and possibly overconfident. Uh, as a company, you value your equity. So you say our equity is really precious. You know, we don't want to give it away. We'd rather use debt because we can finance this in an offshore jurisdiction at much lower interest rates. Uh, and unfortunately, that uh, that's a much more risky strategy because A, you're going offshore and you're buying into a foreign market and B, you're financing that with, with debt, which is much riskier. You know, if you finance that with equity and it goes wrong, then, you know, the shareholders take the pain, but you don't have an ongoing liability. So that's mm. a very high uh, debt debt ratio for them to resolve. And not surprisingly, it was uh, the first, well, the mo- more important questions that came up to Darren Healy and uh, and the uh, Group FD level uh, on exactly what they're going to be doing about that in the future. I've got a short clip that I, I cut from the report today. Let's have a listen in and then uh, we'll be talking with Harry Faree, the Chief Executive of Capitec, about another interesting story, which is the voting down by shareholders of the implementation of the remuneration strategy at Capitec, a, a rare reverse from what are usually very happy bunch of people given the returns that Capitec has made for them. But let's listen in on that famous brand's um, investment conference today. What is your medium-term target on debt? That is, what would be the ideal position management wants to be in in terms of net debt to EBITDA? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that, Darren. Um, thank you to Milling. So if we first talk about the, um, 
the gross debt position, what we're comfortable with, it's around 1 billion rand to 1.5 billion rand. You, you'll have noticed that we closed out at 1.5 billion rand. So quite, quite comfortable with where we are even in the short term. In terms of the net debt to EBITDA, um, the, the first thing is to meet our financial covenants, which you, which are disclosed in note 14 again of the long form. But where we would be comfortable is certainly below, below the level required for us to start getting onto the, the, the dividend uh, story. Okay. We have one question from Alec um, from biznews.com. After GBK in Tashes, are there any more sales of brands being planned? Uh, Alec, no, I think our strategy is very clear right now. So the, 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 the trimming of the portfolio uh, is probably complete. I mean, there, there, may, there may well be opportunistic things that come along, but I'm comfortable that the signature brand's portfolio is something now that we, we can work with. Uh, and, you know, there may well be, you know, something small on, you know, on the, on the manufacturing side. If, if, if things pan out, maybe not, but nothing, nothing critical in terms of the core business. It is the same as it is. Uh, I mentioned the great bakery company sale as an example. Uh, but no, I, I think the signature brand portfolio is in is in good shape now. Thanks, Darren. The last question I'll take is from Nick at Signal AM. Looking ahead, what are your expectations on store closures? What percentage of franchisees are currently not economically sustainable? Yeah, look, that's always a difficult one because we don't have access to franchisees' balance sheets, so we have a good sense of of, of the PNL. But we're not anticipating the, the kind of year we've had uh, behind us, so we think that that's fairly stable. I mean, there will always be movement in the base, so don't get me wrong, there, there will, you know, particularly with relocations. What we don't know is the demographic changes post-COVID, uh, so we never provide a projection on that, but we don't, we're not anticipating any form of surge uh, or anything that, that's uh, out of the blue or abnormal. In terms of the franchisee profitability, you know, remember that franchisees have had relief like we've all had in business. So as much as the base has dropped, you know, we've provided relief. Government has been been helpful around UIF tourist. Uh, landlords have been very helpful. Banks have been very helpful. Franchisees have rolled their sleeves up and worked damn hard. You know, labor has, has really lost out in this whole conversation because there's been a lot less hours put through it has kept the cost down. So the model itself has readjusted to some degree. It's really around now the recovery uh, and, and how profitable the businesses are. But on the path we're on right now, we're, we're very optimistic. That was Darren Healy, who's the chief executive of Famous Brands. And uh, you also heard Lebo Ntla, who is the group financial director of the company. We are now, Stephen, as promised, uh, bringing in Kheri Faree, the chief executive of Capitec. And Kheri, uh, for a company that has, has been so admired and uh, done so well for shareholders and uh, uh, number one in South Africa on return to those who invested with you, it was a surprise to see at your annual general meeting that more than 50% of your shareholders voted against the remuneration policy execution. Now, this is not, uh, it, it, I don't know if it's ever happened in Capitex history before. Uh, did it come as a surprise to you? Well, yeah, I think what is important, uh, good evening, is important that it's not against the remuneration policy, but it's the execution. We already engaged with shareholders about two, three, four weeks beforehand, and we knew that they were unhappy. Um, not so much unhappy uh, because the majority said they fully understand why we did it, uh, but from a compliance point of view, they have to vote against. Uh, and I will ex- explain. We have set certain targets for our bonuses as well as for our uh, share options um, pre-COVID because nobody knew about COVID in February when we did that. And then COVID happened and we had to adjust uh, our, our bonuses and options to take COVID into consideration. And what everyone has said, you can change your targets going forward, but you can't do it uh, backwards. So we believe it was the right thing to motivate management and to motivate uh, the staff uh, because it benefited everyone. And I think, um, and the main driver of that was, I think, Capitec overall did exceptionally well during the year. And I think that's, that, that's the background. I think what is also 
also important, it's within the mandate of Remco. So Remco made the decision, not management. Um, so that's that's natural, the, the background. Uh, Stephen, Stephen Nathan, who's our um, guest co-host tonight, uh, has has had a lot of these kind of engagements in the past, uh, no doubt, Stephen, where you've seen uh, dis- or unhappiness uh, on certain parts of what is presented at the annual general meeting, but very rarely do shareholders vote something down. Uh, is is there anything that you'd like to pose to Kheri that perhaps can unpack it a bit more? Uh, yes, I think you're right, Alec. I mean, South African uh, shareholders, institutional shareholders, I think, can be criticised and can many others for being too kind of passive uh, and not for taking a stand on issues. And I'm not saying this is an issue that they should have or shouldn't have. Um, but I think maybe just, uh, and Kerry touched on it, I think what's really important here, and I, and I don't know the detail, but, you know, it's, it's if everyone in the company is treated equally, because, you know, if this is seen, if there's a handful of executives who seem to be getting a special treatment uh, and, and others in the company, uh, you know, all, I think there's almost 15,000 people at Capitec are not benefiting in any other way, then that would be really unfair. So I think there's two issues here. The one issue is, you know, internally the messaging and the way that uh, all employees are being treated and whether that creates any animosity. Uh, the second issue is always a difficult one for, um, you know, for institutional sh- or, or for shells in general, because you want management to be incentivized and you want all employees to be incentivized. Um, but it's always a difficult one when something like this happens. COVID is an unforeseen event. Um, you know, and, and should people be compensated for that or should they take that on the chin uh, as everyone else says? That's a, you know, that's a very difficult decision. I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical when companies say that they're going to, people are going to be demotivated and they're going to lose, uh, uh, staff to others because others should be in the same position. And then you get in a game where everyone, you know, it's not the lowest common denominator, it's the highest common denominator that you are uh, tackling. But I'd be interested to know, Harry's just, which he did touch on, uh, did this benefit others, uh, other employees in the group? Thanks. Yeah, uh, Stephen, I think uh, uh, very important. There was two sections. There's the short-term bonus uh, that was all staff, uh, and then the long-term bonuses, which is options, which is for your excos and divisional uh, exco members. Um, so um, the view we t- t- taken is that it's an ex- uh, extraordinary year with COVID. The targets that were set on both of them were not relevant given COVID, and then you need to use your your judgment, and that's what Remco has done. Um, and a very big portion of that was the fact that you know in the six, last six months of the year. Capitec was actually 18% stronger than the previous year's six months. So um, Capitec overall did well, and that's why they felt it was important to to motivate uh, all staff in this case. So we we uh, now go into a more normal year one hopes in the year ahead, and these kind of issues, uh, would you confidently predict clearly that uh, shareholders are not going to vote it down again in a year's time? <laughs> Well, I, I don't know. Uh, like it's it's a it's an interesting one because firstly, I think a lot of companies is going to struggle this year with the COVID impact and how do you remunerate and do you adjust? Don't you adjust? Um, because I think we were first or very, relatively first. Um, so I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens right through um, with all companies um, given COVID because COVID nobody planned COVID and nobody knew how COVID is working and it's interesting. The one uh, criteria we've got is that you need to create, uh, grow with a GDP plus inflation plus 4%. Now, in COVID, it was extraordinary uh, because you would never get through that. Everyone had negative figures. And now the year after COVID, you, you will, will way overshoot that. Uh, so that's the interesting part of COVID. So it's got actually a two-year effect. It's uh, going to be occupying minds both within boardrooms and uh, within financial institutions uh, on exactly how to, to well, to, to, to play this, exactly as, as Gerry says, a bad year from COVID, but then shooting the lights out the next year. It just shows that we live in a very complex world. And we try our best to uh, make it less complicated for you with the help of Stephen Nathan on a Tuesday night, our guest co-host. You will recall Stephen is the founder 
of 10x. Uh, he is now an independent. Uh, I suppose, Stephen, is it is it gardening leave that they call it now that you're on? I'm calling it a sabbatical. You're calling it a, a sabbatical. Well, that's that's fantastic. We're delighted to have you for your sabbatical and thereafter, we hope. Uh, but thanks again for your contribution tonight. And thanks for being with us wherever in the world you might have been. We look forward to being back in your company again, 5.30 tomorrow. Until then, from the team here at Biz News, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.